Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we will be asking Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett why income equality makes societies stronger. A couple of years ago, I started doing triathlons, and it has become an all-consuming hobby. It has had tremendously positive effects on my life. At 50 years old, I'm in the best shape I've ever been, mentally and physically. I would recommend triathlons to anyone, but here's the thing. It is so expensive. From bikes to specialized bathing suits, there is always more to buy, and the cheap stuff doesn't cut it anymore. If I don't buy professional grade, I end up with some excruciating pain somewhere. It's also incredibly time-consuming. I have very flexible work hours and a supportive family. And there are triathletes who have office jobs or factory jobs, but I don't know how they manage it all. Where I live also helps. Grand Forks is a small Midwestern city, and a 10-minute bike ride gets you out in the farmland. I haven't been able to swim since the pandemic hit, but I went on a 55-mile bicycle ride two days ago, and the only person I interacted with at all was a farmer who waved from the cab of his massive seed drill. In other words, when I say I would recommend triathlons to anyone, I mean anyone with means. Sure, discipline, focus, and choice are all factors, but ultimately, I am healthier because I am economically well-off. Consider this another way. Why is it that in the United States, the National Hockey League is made up almost entirely of white players, and the National Basketball League is predominantly black? Are team owners just a bunch of racists? Probably not. The issue is that hockey is an expensive sport that needs space and climate control. Every player needs skates and a stick. They all need pads and helmets. NewToHockey.com estimates that cost at $500 to $1,000 per person, half that if you buy used equipment. In contrast, basketball requires one ball for 10 players, and each person needs sneakers. Hockey requires an ice rink with regular maintenance. Basketball needs a hoop and a schoolyard. Hockey flourishes in the northern Midwest, where there is space, long winter, middle-class communities, and a mostly white population. Basketball recruits from densely populated urban areas, poor communities, and the predominantly black neighborhoods of the hotter South. Hockey, like triathlons, is a sport for people with money and elbow room. These inequalities establish our options at a very young age. Yes, a black kid can play hockey. In 2017, 43 out of 700 NHL players were African American. Three played with Detroit. But just imagine what these guys had to do to succeed against that social pressure. Now combine this with the fact that poorer areas in the U.S. have less access to medical care, healthier food, better schools, up-to-date technology, and safer streets, and we're forced to ask how poor people can ever be healthy at all. But here's the twist. It's not just that an unequal society breeds healthy rich people and unhealthy poor. That would hardly be news. It's that an unequal society undermines health for everyone at all income levels. That's what we are going to discuss today. Even the wealthy are worse off in societies with significant income inequality. The rich are better off when there is more inequality, not less. This is counterintuitive, because as capitalists, we tend to think of health as another zero-sum product. We imagine a scarcity of well-being, that only part of the population can be healthy at any given time. But there's no reason why this would be true. Health in some breeds health in others. People tend to gain weight as their friends do. They also smoke and drink similar amounts. 
If a community can support a co-op or a farmer's market, all shoppers can benefit. If cities tax to cultivate a greenway or park, then everyone can spend more time outside. When people act like a community, they become healthy like one. The idea that the wealthy are worse off under income inequality also undermines our perception of individualism. Nothing seems more a product of personal responsibility than someone's own health. But have you ever tried to be relaxed in a room of stressed out people or calm when all of your friends are nervous? That stuff is contagious. You can't just decide to be content. It doesn't work that way. And it turns out that the psychological contagion does not just come from our immediate surroundings, but from the social, political, and institutional structures that form our nations. Each national tragedy in the U.S. since 1950, from the wars to the recession, has exacerbated income inequality, and as our guests today will show, as we become more divided, we become less healthy. The fact is, on some level, individuality is an illusion. We do not stand alone, discrete individuals who make our own world through sheer will and persistence. We are parts of communities that help determine even where our bodies begin and end. What we ingest, hear, and feel are all given by outside forces, and what others can eat, listen to, and absorb are handed to them by us. It is genuinely difficult to determine where we begin and someone else ends. Income inequality is not a taxonomy of winners and losers. It is a shorthand for the ways in which our society limits or cultivates our health and well-being. On today's show, we're going to find out why, and in doing so, we'll reinforce the platitude that is bandied about so casually and argue for the truth of it, that in the face of COVID-19, we really are all in this together. And now our guests. Richard Wilkinson is Professor Emeritus at the University of Nottingham Medical School in England and has spent more than five decades researching poverty and its impact on people and society. Kate Pickett is a Professor of Epidemiology at the University of York and the founder of the UK-based charity The Equality Trust. She was a career scientist at the National Institute for Health Research. Richard and Kate, welcome to Why. Hello. Thank you. If you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at YRadioShow. You can always email us at YRadioShow.com and listen to our previous episodes for free at YRadioShow.com. So first of all, I hope both of you are faring okay in uh, the pandemic. What's what's England like right now? Well, it's quite strange. Um we're still under very strict lockdown. We've been under strict lockdown since the 23rd of March. There was a little bit of easing um, a week or so ago, but pretty much everything is still closed and people are still at home. Um, we feel very privileged in our circumstances, but we're aware of how much suffering there is taking place. Yeah, what lockdown is like for you uh, is affected very dramatically by whether you're richer or poorer. Um, if you live in the country and have a garden, it's very different from if you're in a, um, an apartment in a tower block, um, maybe with a crying child and so on. Uh, that's much tougher. This has been really vivid for me because, of course, I'm in this more rural area. I have a house and, and, and a backyard. My mother uh, is in central Manhattan. And has been there longer. Uh, the pandemic started. She lives by herself. I live with my family. And just the day-to-day experience of the two of us, it's, it, it, it's overwhelming. Everything, everything about it changes based on income, location, who you're with. It's, it's, when people started, 
they talked about this as it would be a universal community building experience. But I'm not sure it's doing that. Do you think it's doing that in the UK? I think there are uh, many people who feel it is. Um, there are um, there's a, a sort of outbreak of sociability um, all over the country. WhatsApp groups, uh, streets and villages, and so on. People feeling they are in it together, despite the huge uh, economic differences. Uh, still, we're all facing a, a threat from the virus and uh, having to deal with lockdown. And so I think there is a feeling that it's a shared experience. And in a sense, that uh, partly overcomes the inequalities of uh, income and wealth. Well, I disagree slightly. I agree with Richard that we have an epidemic of solidarity as well as an epidemic of coronavirus. Um, and I think we started out with much more feeling that we're all in this together and that, that is deteriorating quite rapidly. Um, it's very clear from data in the UK that you're more likely to be sick and you're more likely to have a serious illness or die of coronavirus if you live in a deprived area or if you're a member of a black or minority ethnic population. And that's due to both sort of increased risk of catching the disease because of living in overcrowded conditions, multi-generational households, not being able to stop working outside the home because your income is so low, but also worse complications and deaths because those populations are more likely to have underlying health conditions. So it's exposing the health and social and economic inequalities that were there already. And we're seeing that we're not all in this together. Some of us are at much more risk than others. So I think it's the two things going on. Social solidarity is a really positive thing, but this crisis is really highlighting existing inequalities. I have a, an odd question, but I want to ask it in preparation for the larger conversation that we're having. And it's, how on display is poverty in the UK? In the United States, we have very segregated societies, obviously um, uh, segregated by race and ethnicity, but also by, by income level. In the urban areas, it's much more together and you see homelessness on the street and, and there are transitional neighborhoods where the wealthier and the less wealthy uh, tend to overlap. But in rural areas, even in small towns uh, in, in the United States, there's a poor neighborhood and a, and a wealthier neighborhood. And so it is easier for a person to go through life without seeing the difference and without attending to poverty. Is that possible in the UK? And is, say, England different than Scotland in that regard? Um, I would say it is possible. Um, and I should point out, I lived in the United States for 16 years, so I know very well that segregation that, that you're talking about. We don't have parts of Britain that are so segregated by ethnicity um, as in the United States. And certainly in big cities, there are poor and rich neighborhoods next to one another, and, and it would be quite difficult for people to be unaware but there's no doubt that if you come from an affluent area um, and you're middle class and educated and perhaps you went to private school that you'll have very little understanding of the lives of people who are living 
in deep poverty, perhaps even just down the road from you? Yes, I think much of what's been said so far, including your introduction, concentrated on, on the very outward material effects of differences in income. But I think really to understand what inequality does, uh, you have to think of it in terms of, of creating a sort of aura of superiority and inferiority um, in some strange way that I think we don't fully understand. People know their position in society, their class and so on. And it might be by their education, um, what kind of jobs they uh, do or would apply for, um, but also things like what part of town they live in. Um, and you know, we've heard of people being really pretty ashamed of, of uh, uh, where they live and even getting off the bus early so that uh, other people on the bus don't know that you live in this sinker state. Um, it's those kinds of more cultural uh, effects of inequality that matter. They're still based on income in that, you know, you can uh, send your children to private schools and so on if you're wealthy. Um, you can eat in good restaurants. You're more likely to be familiar with the arts and so on. Um, but it, it's a sort of cultural superstructure built on top of the material differences in income, which and that material that that cultural superstructure depends very much on the um, income underpinning. I, th I think in both our countries. It is possible for the rich to not know how the other half lives, but I don't think it's possible for the other half not to know how the rich live. We're all exposed to that. Reading about it every day and seeing it on television. It, the, the rich are certainly established as the normative standard, as, as what everyone should be, as what everyone should strive for, and in some sense the poor are regarded as a variation, uh, I don't want to say an anomaly because they're always there, but but somehow a, a distortion of of the proper way that a human being should be. Is, is, is that true in, in the UK as well? Yes, very much so. But actually, the cri again, the coronavirus crisis is, is causing change. We now label as key workers people with jobs um, that we looked down upon before. So now we recognise that the people who really keep us going are our healthcare workers, our carers for the elderly and small children. Shop assistants. People who stop the supermarket shelves and take away our trash. Truck drivers. They're still not paid more, but they are actually being appreciated more. And maybe that will be long term and we'll see a shift in an understanding of the value of different kinds of contribution. And people refer to that rather often, uh, the fact that it is the workers regarded as the essential workers who are paid so little. This is what's so uh, fascinating about your book, The Spirit Level, in that it really, it is a conversation about this material foundation that, that, that you call it, but ultimately is an exploration of our social and cultural connections, our interpersonal relationships, and the way that we look at ourselves as individuals and we look at ourselves as a society. Now, the the first edition 
came out about a decade ago, and then you you have a new edition recently. It's not a new edition. It's a new book. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My mistake. Let me let 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 me let me frame this in in, in a couple of different questions ways. Then, so 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 the first question is, um, when the pandemic happened, did you feel like you had established? The, the foundation for the conversation that was going to happen? Or did you feel that, that the conversation shifted radically? And the, the, the second form of the question is, as your work has changed from the earlier version to the later version, and to the, this, 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 this new uh, approach to it, or sorry, the, the, this new book, does your approach change and will it have to change again because of the lessons learned from the pandemic? Or do you feel that there's a, a central continuity, a central continuity between uh, the poverty research that you've been doing for so long? Um, it's, it's really a very strong continuity. In, in the first book, The Spirit Level, we were showing uh, the statistical relationships, the tendencies for countries with bigger income differences between rich and poor to have worse outcomes, to have uh, lower life expectancy, to have uh, more teenage births, to have higher homicide rates, all sorts of poor outcomes like that. Uh, in the second book, The Inner Level, we were showing at a more fundamental psychological uh, um, way why these relationships exist, what it is that inequality does to us, uh, which has those effects. And some of them are quite simple. I mean, that uh, homicides go up with inequality because uh, uh, violence is triggered by uh, loss of face, humiliation, uh, um, disrespect, and so on. And in a more unequal society, the differences in status and class matter more. Um, we're more sensitive to those issues. Um, and uh, actually, there are um, studies which actually show that we all become more worried about uh, status, higher levels of status anxiety in every income group in a more unequal society. And then that thread sort of continues with the pandemic, um, because I think it's making a lot of people realise how deeply inequality is affecting people's both sort of immediate risk of harm during the pandemic and their long-term risk of economic and health harm as well. We're hearing loads of calls, you know, worldwide at sort of community level, national level, international level to build back better or bounce beyond, or <laughs> we're hearing lots of different terms for this idea that we should rebuild our societies to be better than they were before the pandemic and that this is a sort of a teachable moment and every single one of those discussions um, they're talking about inequality as the, as the heart of this so I think there is a continuity between the work we've done before the pandemic um, and the policy changes that are needed to truly build back better. So I'm going to interject for just a second and admit something that explains the confusion that also will make a university students gleeful everywhere, especially my own, which is we were indeed talking about two different books. 
I read the spirit level. I actually haven't read the inner level because I didn't know it existed until this very moment. So I'm a little embarrassed here uh, that, our, that, that I wasn't as clear in my communication. But what is uh, really fascinating about what you're saying is that all of the, the, the stuff that you're saying now is very much established in the first book because through the, 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 the data that, that you've uh, articulated, you see these questions that you're now bringing up, these, these, these psychological questions, these motivational questions, as clearly established by the medical facts, clearly established by the, the health outcomes um, on the different income levels. And so I want to ask, is it possible to have a conversation, as many people want to, that is entirely material? Is it possible to have a conversation that you look at uh, blood numbers, you look at physiological concerns, you look at medication, you look at all of these other things, and you can address health issues purely in material circumstances, or do you have to look at the more characterological, the more psychological, and the more sociological elements, or you're not going to get any kind of real solution. We've been involved in research on health inequalities, the big uh, uh, social class differences in health, uh, differences between well-educated and poorly educated, uh, which amount to, in countries like United States and Britain, you often find 10 or even 15 year differences in life expectancy between rich and poor neighborhoods. Um, and uh, one of the real surprises um, that I suppose started to come in probably 20 years ago was a recognition of how important uh, chronic stress is, psychosocial stress um, in explaining these differences. Um, the lower your social status, the faster you age, in effect, becoming more vulnerable to a great many uh, diseases. And recently it's been discovered that this is a, a common pattern in, in many different uh, animal species. Uh, crucial to this stress are really three things. Issues to do with friendship, your social connectedness, how many friends you've got. Friendship is extraordinarily protective of health. Uh, social status is a, a second one. Um, and the quality of early life uh, as the third. And across different species, but very strongly in human beings, you see these three factors are crucial in a whole range of social stresses. Um, and I, I think it's really important to recognize that those worries about how you're seen and judged by other people, you know, what do people think of you? Do they respect you and look up to you? You know, we live in societies where some people seem hugely important and others are regarded as complete failures and, you know, people use words like trash for them. Uh, that makes us all more worried about how we are seen, uh, increases those social anxieties. And I think those and those are not the worst kinds of stress, but they're the most common forms of stress in populations. And those are absolutely central to understanding health inequalities. You mention two different things that are related to your answer. The first is 
you had remarked that friends are incredibly protective of health. And in the spirit level, you indicate that uh, people with strong friend groups uh, get are, are less likely to get cold viruses, and that people with strong friend groups are also they they heal physical wounds faster, which I think is astonishing and and really interesting. At the same time, you make this distinction between friendship and social status and suggest that they're in opposition to one another and that they play opposing roles in a society. What's the difference between friendship and social status and what's the tension there? Um, in, in a sense, uh, the two different ways human beings can relate to each other. Uh, these things are so fundamental because... Um, the way friends deal with um, their different needs is, is friends share. Um, you share food. The words for companion are com and pan, um, <clears throat> with and bread. Um, so your companions are people you share your food and necess necessities with. Um, whereas social status is exactly the opposite. Thinking of, think of a monkey dominance hierarchy. Um, the stronger ones at the top uh, eat first, and the subordinates who are weaker um, only get food if there's some left. Um, so those are two opposite ways people can come together, either as competitors for everything or as, as sharing groups. And we are extraordinarily sensitive to the quality of, of social relationships because that's always been an important uh, determinant of well-being. I would just add that research has shown that friendship is as protective for health in terms of your risk of dying over a certain number of years as smoking is bad for it. Hmm. So these, these are powerful forces, these social, psychosocial determinants of health. Our, our popular culture, our literature, it's all filled with discussions of social status uh, competition within friend groups. There's a famous movie from about 15 years ago called Mean Girls about uh, competition within high, uh, high schools for, for girls. But, but even our sitcoms and all of that sort of stuff, there's a lot of this. Do you think that that's what Aristotle would call a category mistake. Do you think that it's wrong to emphasize this, the, 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 the social competitive nature of friend groups? Or is that a sign that they're not really friends, something is going wrong in the, in, in the interpersonal activity? What happens to friendship when that competition, uh, when that social status element um, infects it? Well, I think it's really interesting that you said in our culture, we see that because I think what the evidence shows is that this is not true of all cultures. So if we look at um, bullying among school children, clearly linked to inequality with much higher levels of bullying, that's both um, being a perpetrator of and being a victim of in more unequal societies. So those friendship groups where competition becomes really intense that's much more likely to be happening in a more ceases, unequal society. And it ceases to be friendship. Um, uh, you know, if you're <laughs> bullied, it's, it's about hatred much more. And you get kids uh, who are suicidal as a result of even, uh, even cyberbullying. 
Um, I, I mean, there's, there's joshing between friends, but uh, we never treat each other. And I mean, if, if I really put somebody down and, you know, think that uh, someone is just there to get the tea or um, coffee for people who are not really uh, equal status, it can be enraging for them if that's not not true to to diss them in that sort of way. Um, so I, I don't think people should um, mix, confuse these two categories. And indeed, there's studies that show that uh, a good friendship network offsets uh, some of the damaging effects of low social status. Because so, there are people who value you. At, at bottom, what this is about is whether or not you feel valued. So it's not accidental that in most of these narratives, the bullies are uh, at a different economic class. Often in the high school films, it's the, the rich, popular kids are bullying the, the poor kids, uh, but it doesn't have to be. I'm actually thinking of a counterexample. Um, my cultural reference is a little old here, but but the English film uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, where there's a group of, of friends and one is the third richest person in England, but he's so generous and so happy and so sharing with it that it's never a source of conflict. So if I understand what you're saying and if I connect it to your research, right, that that when you find these instances of bullying, what you are really finding is some profound inequality that needs to be addressed. I think there's no doubt at all that bullying is much more common in more unequal societies where status is more important. Um, 10 or 15 times as common uh, amongst kids of 11 or 12, uh, 13 years old. I mean, what we'd really like to be able to measure is bullying among adults. Unfortunately, there are no sources of that kind of data comparable across countries that is really interesting in in part the 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 first uh, instinct I had was to, to suggest that someone does a study on the university level because I've actually found that there's tremendous amount of bullying in the university setting amongst certain types of faculty, but I think that that's probably true in universities with either scarce resources or very strict hierarchies. It's probably not true when everyone is in, in the same boat because the instances that I know of are instances where one of the faculty members or administrators is threatened by the resources or the reputation uh, of, of, let's say, a newcomer. I think universities are exceptionally hierarchical places, but, but many institutions are. I actually work in, in two different institutions. I work in um, a university, but also in a national health service-based research institute which has a very collegial egalitarian feel to it, comes, it flows, flows from the director. And during lockdown, you know, I'm spending most of my life in Zoom meetings and my meetings with those colleagues are wonderful, friendly, sharing, lots of work gets done. And then some other meetings I'm in, you feel like you, you haven't got a voice, you can't be heard, they're being managed in a completely different way, in a very hierarchical way reflecting, I suppose, the different institutions when they're in, in sort of normal times. Um, and, and yeah, it's much more alienating. 
So if I were a bullying consultant, or I should say an anti-bullying consultant, and, um, and I was going into a dysfunctional workplace and I found an extreme amount of bullying, would a first question or the first question I ask, should it be, okay, what are the inequalities here? What are the resource? What are the power? What are the status inequalities? Is inequality the, the lexicon, the, 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 the legend um, that allows us to see these sort of competitive dynamics? It's about all the sources of status competition. You know, if, I was once uh, sent to a school where every class in the school, the kids in that class were ordered according to their marks over the last month. Um, and the bullying was appalling. Um, it was a form order, a class order. Um, and the one at the top was regarded as having the power to boss the others around. That's absolutely what you'd do if you were in, to increase uh, bullying, because what we want is to value people more equally. The damage that inequality is doing is valuing people so unequally. And I think we really haven't got into the conversation we need to have uh, about those feelings of self-worth, the feelings of self-doubt, um, the lack of confidence that is such a common form of stress. I mean, I, I think in a workplace, one could start by asking questions of what is the pay ratio here? How much more are the people at the top paid compared to the people at the bottom? So in um, large British companies, um, the chief executives often make about 300 times what the lowest paid employees make. So they, in effect, they are feeling that they are 300 times more worthwhile than the people at the bottoms. So we could be asking questions about that. But then there are power inequalities as well. There will be inequalities in who has a voice. And Richard and I have been writing a lot recently about economic democracy within work settings as a way of combating those inequalities and getting greater equality more deeply embedded within companies. So let's talk about this status competition then. And Kate, you, you talk about the, the sort of external influences. Um, and then Richard talked about uh, self-esteem and self-worth. You, you cite a scholar uh, who talks about two different kinds of self-esteem, a sort of secure and an insecure self-esteem, that, that what we mean by self-esteem isn't entirely consistent and leads to different levels of empathy and different ideas of, of how to, to treat other people. What do you mean by self-esteem and how does that mimic or respond to the status competition? Yeah, we, we write about that um, a lot more in, in our more recent book. So for decades, um, scholars would measure what they thought was self-esteem. Um, they had standard measures for doing that. And then they noticed that although happiness was not improving in societies and levels of anxiety and depression were increasing, self-esteem seemed to be on the rise. And it was also much higher, for instance, in America, among African-American men, who probably are the group 
receiving the most prejudice and discrimination and precarity, etc. So there was a gradual realization that perhaps self-esteem wasn't really measuring what we mean by self-esteem, which is a sort of sensible reflection on your own capabilities and capacities and confidence in yourself, a realistic confidence in your, in your capabilities, but instead was more people trying to put on a good front, say they're doing okay, even when they're not. Um, and so in fact, they were measuring both healthy self-esteem and narcissism at the same time. And it was only when the measures changed to sort of disaggregate those things that we can see narcissism rising over time with inequality. Um, genuine self-esteem going down. Genuine self-esteem going down, yes. And with the narcissism came uh, a lack of empathy, a lack of attention to others. I When I, I read the passage aloud to my, my wife, Kim, because I thought it was so fascinating, and talking about how the insecure self-esteem was about uh, that when, when someone is secure with their self-esteem, they know the limitations, they know what they can and can't do, they they can celebrate their confidences and work around their 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 insecurities. But for the more insecure self-esteem, they're they're defensive and hostile about the things they can't do and can pretend they they do better. And my wife's reaction was, that sounds like American culture. <laughs> and what she meant by that was that that America likes to pretend that it does all of these things well when in fact it doesn't like to address what it doesn't do, do well and and as this narcissism expands it becomes less and less empathetic uh to the rest of the world right and we see now what's going on politically that this is exacerbated even more so can you can you make these claims on the cultural level? Do you think that that what's true of an individual um, can also be true collectively or culturally or societally? We see it very clearly in the data. You see where bigger income differences make uh, status more important. Um, it also affects our own evaluation of ourselves and our own feelings of self worth. And as I say, we become more worried about how we are seen and judged by others, uh, more twitchy about it, if you like. Um, and there seem to be two responses that you see more commonly in more unequal societies. Uh, at one level, people become, um, more people become. Uh, overcome with uh, doubts about self-esteem, self-worth, levels of confidence and so on. Uh, and start finding social contact um, pretty stressful. And so you avoid going to parties, avoid going out in the evenings. Um, you isolate yourself to, to some extent uh, to avoid those social judgments. Uh, but the other response, uh, even more common, is uh, that you um, flaunt your abilities and achievements. You become narcissistic. In a way, you self-aggrandizement. Um, self-enhancement psychologists call it. You big yourself up in other people's eyes. You spend more time uh, thinking about self-presentation, both how you come across conversationally as well as makeup and uh, appearance. Um, and you see both those responses, uh, the withdrawal, the social anxiety, uh, depression, more common in, in more unequal societies, as well as the bigging yourself up, the self-aggrandizement, both more common in response to 
those worries about status being more important with bigger income differences. So your, your wife was spot on. <laughs> well, she always, always is. <laughs> Much more self-enhancement in American culture than there would be in more equal societies. But more in Britain than uh, many other European countries. Does Does the conversation or the reaction change depending on how... Self-aware isn't the right phrase, but 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 how self-consciously a country is aware of these things. I, I in the United States, any mention of the word economic class gets yelled down. Um, you know, the right, especially, the moment you use the word class, they start screaming about Marx and 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 class warfare. But in England, at least the 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 language of class is pretty much on the surface and, and, and commonplace, even if there are difficult conversations to be had. The more a society talks about and, and addresses the, the, the status or just acknowledges the status difference, does that make a difference? Or do there have to be actual attempts to really mitigate the causes and the consequences? I don't think it much matters what you call it, um, whether you dislike the word class and prefer status or, or something like that. Um, what matters is those feelings of whether or not you're valued, self-worth. And that's why friendship is part of this picture. Um, and uh, we see, I think, in our modern, rather very unequal societies, a crisis of, of self-confidence whether you respond to that by withdrawing from social life or, or by trying to big yourself up. They're both um, pretty sad responses to the same underlying problem. I, I, I want to pivot the conversation to talk about what I take to be one of your central insights, which is that the making a society more equal does not just help the worse off, but it helps the better off as well. That that an equal society is better for pretty much everybody in the society. I wondered if you talk a little bit about what that means and why that is, because most of the conversation about economic justice, at least in the United States, is raising the bottom. And there is this language of sacrifice. The billionaires have to or I, I don't even want to say the billionaires because I because I know you remarked that there's there's very few data points to 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 analyze that. But but the the upper classes they have to make the sacrifice. They have to make pay more taxes. And there's there's this zero sum approach. Uh, but your insights indicate that that's actually not the case. That it's better off for everyone. Why and and how did you come to that conclusion? It's quite simple, really. When we talk about um, health inequalities or inequalities in any other kind of outcome we're interested in, like homicide rates or teenage births, etc., there isn't just a problem among the poor and no problem among the rest of us. For all of these issues, there's what we call a social gradient. So it's more like a ladder. Um, where the problems are worse at the bottom but even just below the top, they're a little bit worse than they are at the very top. So there's a social gradient in life expectancy. There's a social gradient in social mobility. There's a social gradient in educational attainment. There's a social gradient in mental health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
it's not just about a problem among the poor. It's a problem across society. The social, the social gradient shows that. And what inequality does is it makes that ladder steeper and it pulls the rungs further apart. So the effects of inequality is, uh, are biggest at the bottom of society, uh, but even amongst people with good jobs, incomes, education, uh, if they lived in a more equal society on the same um, incomes and so on, uh, they'd probably live a little bit longer. Uh, their kids might do better at school. They'd be less likely to become victims of violence. In that sense, even better off do better in a more equal society. But the big differences are at the bottom, bottom as Kate says. So there is... There's some sense, uh, and you 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 hear this in a variety of forms, that if you become wealthy, it's good to move to America because the tax rate is lower, because there's certain kinds of economic freedoms that America celebrates, and, and it's probably bad to be wealthy in Sweden. But you're actually suggesting the opposite. You're suggesting that if you compare what it means to be wealthy in America, which is a largely unequal country, and what it means to be wealthy in Sweden, which is a much more equal country, that all in all, it's probably better to be wealthy in Sweden um, because there are all of these other benefits. Yes, that's absolutely yeah. right. But also, taking your hypothetical wealthy person moving to America, how they would do in America over the long term would depend on the equality of the country where they're coming from. There's a very nice study out of Harvard that shows if you come to America from a more unequal society, over the long term, you will tend to, to do better than if you had stayed where you were. But if you come from a more equal society, then the opposite is true. You know, this um, uh, two things popped into my head. The first is that that this certainly speaks to my experience and the people I know who have come to America from uh, Pakistan and from India uh, and who have uh, flourished in the United States. And then I wanted to think about people who I know uh, from Norway or Sweden who've done that. And of course, I know very, very few, if any. And that made me think of of you know, pardon the language here, but that made me think of, of Donald Trump's famous comment early on in his presidency that we never get people from Norway, we only get people from the shithole countries. And clearly there is some instinctual understanding that if you are doing well in Norway or Sweden or some other more egalitarian society, you, you don't want to come to the United States because you know you're going to do worse. Well, maybe it's instinct. <laughs> I, think, I think people don't look at the data. They don't realize, uh, you know, how America comes one of the lowest in the rich world for life expectancy, one of the highest in terms of homicides and highest in obesity. And, you know, U.S. does badly and it's been doing badly since its income inequality has become so high. If you go back to, I don't know, the 1950s, um, at least uh, amongst the uh, uh, white population, um, there was a much greater uh, level of equality. Um, and America used to do well in terms of life expectancy compared to other countries. Um, its life expectancy has improved, but uh, it's been outstripped by 
uh, almost every other rich developed country where life expectancy has improved faster. My wife likes to tell a story. Uh, she was on a airport train uh, coming back from the airport in Washington, D.C. Uh, she lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. She's a grad student. And she was sitting next to a German uh, a, a, a German who came and was asking her questions, and she was explaining that there was a no drink order in the Washington D.C. Uh, area at at that time. That that something had happened. The water was polluted. You weren't supposed to drink it. And she was telling the German this, and the German just refused to believe it, and, and said, um, "You know, oh, but this is America. These things don't happen in America." And just dismissed the idea because the vision of America that so many people have, and this is changing, of course, is that everything works incredibly well, uh, and so. That, that that sense that people don't know the reality of America, I think, is, is, is very real, um, although it might be changing. So then the question becomes, Kate, in response to your comment, how much of this is known by instinct? I mean, how much of this is is a sort of collective knowledge that trickles through without having to do the research? Or, or how much of this sense of the, the connection between inequality and unhappiness and lack of health is just unknown because people aren't scientists, because people don't read the literature, because this stuff is not talked about? Well, the reason we wrote The Spirit Level was because stuff wasn't talked about. And now I think inequality, it is talked about a lot. Um, we collect data in Britain every year in something called a British Social Attitude Survey. And it shows that British people underestimate inequality consistently, um, although they wish society to be more equal than it is. Um, and I think that's true in other countries around the world. People consistently underestimate the state of their society. Um, there, was a, there was an interesting study that was, that was done of Americans where they were asked to choose the income distribution they thought they'd got and then choose the one they would like to have. And about 90% of them chose what they would like to have was actually what, what is currently Swedish level of inequality. They were being shown the Swedish data, they chose it not knowing. And that was true of Republicans and Democrats, men and women, um, different ethnicities, different ages. So I think there is a human preference and a lot of economic um, experiments show this for egalitarianism between people, for sharing and being cooperative rather than being competitive. Um, and yet we still hear people talking about human nature as being instinctively competitive. So I think we're not, um, and, and we might have some instincts about what feels good about a society and what doesn't, without necessarily being able to describe why that is or understand the underlying um, statistics. I mean, I think if you, if you just cross the border from Canada to the United States or vice versa, the countries feel very different straight away um, in ways that you probably couldn't quite put your finger on, but are most likely all linked to inequality. We, we uh, in, in Grand Forks, were just a short drive from the border uh, to Canada, and and our nearest big city is Winnipeg, and Winnipeg is 
often maligned as the most dangerous city in, in Canada and, and, and not the nicest place to live. And of course, and it has a rough and tumble feel, but the problem is ultimately that it has the largest um, uh, car break-ins <laughs> in Canada. And there is a, little, a, a few muggings, but nothing like any of the places I've ever lived when I lived in an American city. There's no comparison. And you do have a sense, uh, a very different sense, even, even there, of what Canada's like. I, I, I want to go back, something you said, and I want to figure out how to phrase it, because I'm not sure that I can, I can phrase it exactly right. But Richard, when you were talking about the 1950s, of course, this is a very touchy area for the reason that you absolutely acknowledged. You said that um, that if you're looking at at at, at uh, uh, the the experience of, of white people, that there was that there was more equality than uh, amongst whites, uh, not counting the African Americans. Um, and so, there are going to be people who say that 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 that's a a version of just just distorting everything that that if you if you and I don't mean to suggest you're disregarding it but if you if you're just comparing the one group without looking at the oppressed group that then things get that that they're not really accurate there's an expression we use in the United States sometimes which is um you know well other than that how was the play mrs lincoln <laughs> right and what it means is that everything's such a disaster how can you ask you know whether there there's good aspects so so I guess the question I want to ask is, is it possible to have a fair assessment of a society um, or of, a, let's say, a subgroup within a society while bracketing um, the people who are are stepped on in order to get that? I, um, I'm not sure that I'm phrasing the question right, but ultimately what I mean to be asking is, so much what we talk about when we talk about economic data is selective. Um, how do you know when the data you're looking at is inclusive enough to make appropriate claims? And how do you know when certain populations are disregarded or invisible and their inclusion would, would change the results? Does that question make sense? The data we use is whole population data. Uh, so the figures on life expectancy um, are very, very sound um, for the developed world, the rich countries that uh, we look at. Um, and although figures on crime may, may be a bit different because crime, different laws means what counts as a crime is different, homicide rates, you can really compare accurately across countries. Um, and all sorts of other outcomes. I mean, kids' maths and reading ability, where uh, they're assessed internationally uh, according to uh, OECD uh, criteria, uh, they use exactly the same tests on random samples of kids. I mean, I think Richard's right. You know, we try really hard to use sort of robust sources of data that are going to be population-based. Um, and where everybody has a chance of being included, if, if, if not actually being counted as in censuses or, or mortality data or something. But I do think it's important to, you know, theoretically always be aware that you're more likely to respond to a survey that is um, perhaps sampled at random if you are not from a very marginalized group. And so we do you know, that there does always have to be some thought about 
who should be in these data sources, who is not. I don't think that that's a problem if what you're trying to do is look at what's happening across the range of socioeconomic status or, or across different ethnic groups or different social classes and you're specifically sort of seeking to make those comparisons. But I do think it's always worth thinking for any source of data or for any comparisons, is my average true average for everybody? Should I actually be looking at comparisons and distributions across groups? And are all the groups that I would want to make those comparisons about represented? There, there's a struggle every census in the United States every 10 years to get um, minority and, and marginalized populations because they're often unwilling to answer the door, especially if they're not in the country uh, legally. And and so how hard is it to for the data gatherers and for you as users of the data to verify that the um, the methods were made those extra efforts to be inclusive and that the inclusivity uh, validates the data. And I'm not, I'm not challenging your, your choices at all. I'm just curious, how much can you be aware as a researcher of the methods used and to sort of, and, and to make sure that it fulfills your requirements for inclusion? Is that hard? Is it, is, is that advertised in, in the descriptions of the data set? How, how does one evaluate that? I think it varies from source to source. So things like deaths, births, um, tend to be well recorded. Tax records are quite complete for populations. Um, I think when you're talking about respondents to surveys, that's more problematic, although most of them will report, you know, the efforts made to get a representative sample and whether or not they feel they have succeeded. But we use almost entirely uh, objective data, so we're not asking people's uh, opinions or whether or not they're happy. We're, we're, we're using figures on, uh, for instance, deaths or homicides or obesity, all uh, clear measures. But also we're not collecting the data ourselves. We're downloading them from the World Health Organization or from OECD or from the American census. So uh, it's very unlikely that those results will have biases in uh, that are substantial. And it's very unlikely that those biases will relate and create uh, misleading relationships with inequality. Do you ever find conflicts, uh, significant and, uh, and meaningful conflicts in the data, for example, the U.S. Uh, census data, does it ever conflict with the World Health Organization, or do you find that largely the numbers are are consistent across the board, that, that there's enough people, enough researchers, enough of a history uh, and consistent methodology that there's a, a correspondence between the data? I think there's a high level of consistency and quality in, in the data sources we choose to use. Um, for many things, for instance, the European Union will collect standardized um, data across 28 member countries. The OECD will do the same for, I think it's what, 36 now, members of the OECD. Um, 
things like the Centers for Disease Control and the Census Bureau in the United States will try to ensure consistency in methods and quality across states. So I think, I think there's a fairly high degree of reliability and robustness in the, in the data sources we're choosing to use. Um, and my comments really on who might not be in the data, I think become much more relevant if you're trying to do local research or understand um, a particular context. But if you think of uh, data like uh, the number of people in prison in different countries, you know, there may be countries where they measure that rather badly, um, but it's not going to upset the whole relationship. We know uh, very clearly, and there's no doubt at all in, in researchers' minds around the world, that uh, uh, which countries have low rates of imprisonment and which are high. Um, and the relationships we find between, for instance, the number of people in prisons in different countries and levels of inequality um, make it impossible that that is, is somehow a misleading uh, relationship, an inaccurate one. Um, and the same for a number of other variables, saying when we uh, and analyze differences between the 50 American states uh, in relation to inequality, the number of kids dropping out of high school, uh, those figures aren't misleading nonsense. They give you a fair idea of which states have bigger problems on that score than others. And this is actually, as an American reader, one of the wonderful things about the research, because you do have the global comparisons, but you also have the state-by-state -state comparisons in the United States. And so I've seen North Dakota, you cited North Dakota a couple times in the book, and it was very interesting to to read your comments and how they, they fit with my sense of the state. And so the next question then is, is how local can this go? Because to the, towards the end of the spirit level, you have this comment that baseball teams that have strong amounts of equality and, and, and equal pay, I think the implication was, um, do better than, than unequal baseball teams. That seems like a fairly local and specific claim. Does the, the 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 filter of inequality and and the social and the and, and the status competition um, does it really apply just all along the ladder of 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 of, of size that you can make these analytic uh, evaluations about nations, but you can also make these ev evaluative uh, claims about baseball teams? Is the filter that robust and is the filter that persuasive that it really works on that level? Jack, I'm going to let um, Richard answer this one and go and join my other meeting. I, I should have been in Rome today um, at a meeting there. It's moved online, and so I am now going to virtually join the Vatican and hear what they've got to say. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this and um, say hi to the Pope for me. <laughs> we haven't got the Pope, but we have got a Monsignor. Oh, well, that's <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, what you were asking about, whether you find these uh, same relationships with inequality at a local level, there are lots of studies which have looked at that. And the relationships are much clearer when you look at uh, large uh, areas, large populations. And I think that's because when you get down to neighborhoods, 
there is residential segregation. So you might get a very poor, deprived neighborhood, um, but it doesn't have bad health because uh, of the inequality within it. It has uh, bad health because it's on the downside of inequality in relation to the wider society. You know, that neighborhood is, is at the losing end of, of uh, uh, inequality in a much larger area at the state or national level. In a, in a sense, I think what we're dealing with is whether a society has a very steep social pyramid um, or a, a much shallower one. Um, and uh, we sometimes say that bigger material differences within a population lead to bigger social distances, more of those feelings of superiority and inferiority. Um, and I think uh, we know our position within uh, a hierarchy at that wider level, um, whether it is a, a state or a, um, a nation, uh, they, it, they have their own hierarchy. I want to circle around to, to, to emphasize um, your main point about, about overall well-being by asking you about something you mentioned twice uh, in the spirit level, which is that well-being went up amongst civilians in Britain during the world wars. Uh, that seemed counterintuitive to me because, first of all, uh, scarcity and, and anxiety and all of that sort of thing, but also... I never really thought about it in those terms. Can you talk a little bit about what you may mean by civilian well-being and why this is an example of precisely the kind of thing you're talking about? Well, yes, uh, it is extraordinary. But if you look which decades uh, British life expectancy improved fastest, it's the decades with the two world wars in it. Um, civilian mortality dropped dramatically, uh, despite the, the worries about uh, loved ones in, in fighting overseas and uh, shortages and so on, and the bombing, um, the housing shortages. What appears to have happened is that um, there was a sense of, of shared identity, um, of shared sense of purpose. Um, and that people felt valued. Of course, unemployment uh, almost immediately disappeared. And the wars were famous for their sense of uh, solidarity, um, of people pulling together and helping each other out. Uh, and indeed, um, a historian of, of war and social policy says that uh, Churchill and the, the British government during the, the Second World War uh, realized that it was important to make people feel that the burden of war was equally shared. And to do that, they realized they had to lower the social hierarchy. And so they took uh, uh, steps to um, uh, reduce income differences by taxes, but they also uh, taxed luxuries and subsidized benefits. They introduced rationing. Uh, so in also and, and even the royal family um, made a show of uh, uh, sharing the, the living standards and the, the utilitarian clothing and so on 
uh, of the rest of the population. And that, that engendered a sense of pulling together, um, of all being in it together, um, despite uh, there still being very considerable um, differences in, in incomes and so on. And of course, people cheating on the rationing and shopping each other to authorities and so on. Um, but nevertheless, for most of the population, there was that feeling. Uh, and we've seen it a bit in this COVID uh, lockdown. Um, everywhere, um, groups have made sure they know who the vulnerable people are and that uh, their shopping is getting done for them all right. Um, and this curious practice on at eight o'clock every Thursday evening of people coming out of their houses uh, and standing at their front doors and just clapping uh, the National Health Service workers uh, and care home staff and so on, uh, the essential workers who are so underappreciated in terms of, uh, of their incomes. Um, and, you know, our knowledge that our life depends on those people. Um, and it, it's a very interesting response to um, uh, the lockdown. Uh, the sense of being in it together, despite the huge income differences. Uh, so that sense of a of a shared um, a threat, if you like, a shared experience, has been created by uh, the pandemic. And it it, it carries over. Uh, in I, I remember this very specifically in 1994, uh, Christmas of 1994. I was in Bournemouth in in England. And I was having, I was staying with a family, and there was an older woman in the family who had lived through the war, and we were talking about um, the, the the royals, and she said with tremendous amount of passion uh, and affection, the Queen drove a truck during the war, and and you could tell just the pro the pride and how important it was to her, and you know I remember that quite. I'm a political philosopher by trade, so of course I remember that, but. Uh, Last month, or, or or when the when the pandemic started, um, I don't know how people in England reacted. But when the Queen gave her first message, uh, the the you know the working together message, it went viral in the United States. Um, it was, and people, lots of people were sharing it and saying, "Oh, if only we had a leader of this of, who would express this message and this poise." And as I was listening to her, I kept thinking about this older woman saying, "The Queen drove a truck, right?" And and this woman who was giving this message drove a truck, and. And that carried over to me giving her the benefit of the doubt. And it was very, very powerful experience for me as, as you know, I don't have any strong feelings <laughs> towards a royal family, right? But, um, but there was a, 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 a sort of authenticity about the message, knowing that it has been consistent. And I know that in New York City, where, where I said my mom lives, um, they all clap at about 7 p.m. every day, but there's nothing like that here. And there isn't that sense here in North Dakota that we're all in it together. And in fact, the moment things started loosening up, uh, people, I think, in my opinion, have been acting rather badly. And I think that has to do with this sense of, of status and, and, and competition and not the sense of community that you're talking about. And so it's fascinating to know that the war... You know, while so many other terrible things were going on, that this 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 
increase in equality had such positive effects. Do you think, um, are there ways that you and Kate would suggest we can move back towards this? Are there policy, are there behavior, are there uh, national international changes that you would recommend that we pursue in order to recapture these sorts of things? I think first it's important to recognize that these sort of wartime examples and the, the queen and royal family and so on, they can make those gestures and try and create the image of that we're all in, in it together. But those gestures depend very much on making it look as if the material differences between us are, are suddenly smaller. You know, the, the the queen starts doing ordinary jobs, and uh, at least the, the the members of the royal family in the war did, and wearing austerity clothing and so on. Uh, those that sense of of um, although it's a gesture, it's just a manipulation to create this sense of togetherness. It depends on reducing the apparent. Um, material inequalities and to get the real effects as we see in our international comparisons uh, of solidarity um, of friendliness of sharing and so on uh, you get that in a solid substantial way built into ordinary life where you have small income differences the US used to have very high taxation on on top incomes i mean in the 1960s and 70s it was uh uh 80 or 90 percent of top incomes um the tax top tax rates we think that uh that isn't the way to do it because you know if you had a government that did push up top tax rates um, it would so easily be uh, changed at the stroke of a pen by a, a new uh, government, a new president who didn't like it. We think the, the most important way of moving towards greater equality is through forms of economic democracy, by which I mean employee representation on company boards, not just token representation, um, uh, but very substantial and, and incentives to cooperatives uh, to employee-owned companies, uh, the formation of those kinds of structures. It does look as if in the valuations, and there are a good many of them now, uh, that those kinds of companies are more efficient. They do better in terms of productivity, but they also do better in terms of uh, people's experience of work and, and working relationships. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, um, as Kate said earlier, in, in many of the large multinationals, there are these huge pay differentials. Um, but they have uh, those huge pay differentials of 300 to 1 or so have appeared fairly recently. Um, until the early 1980s, uh, the gap between CEOs at the top of the big companies and uh, the average production worker were about uh, 30 or 40 to 1. Uh, but by the first uh, decade of this century, um, sort of 20, 25 years later, uh, they were more like three or 400 to 1. 
Uh, and so within institutions, there's been this huge increase in differentials. And I think that is, is damaging to production. Uh, there have been studies which have looked at those um, uh, pay differentials at the companies where CEOs are paid more or paid less and uh, shareholder returns are significantly higher where the CEOs are paid less. Um, it's quite extraordinary. And of course, in the great, the heyday of Japanese economic growth, uh, there was quite an aura of uh, CEOs uh, wearing the same uniforms, eating in the same ca canteens as uh, the rest of the workforce. Um, and uh, the directors not being financial elite parachuted in, but often being people promoted from within the company who had loyalties uh, to, to other colleagues in the company. What's fascinating about this response is that it really is at the core what you're recommending throughout the whole book, because if, if all we do in order to increase income equality uh, is tax the rich, then only the rich have status. But if what we do in order to create equality is give agency to the poor and give voices to the workers, then we are giving them the status that they would otherwise have to compete for. And so ultimately, it sounds like your solution is getting right to the heart of the matter, which is how do we respect each person and allow them to to not have to compete for the status, but rather to be full members of society. Yes, and this isn't just sort of pie in the sky. Uh, about half the countries belonging to the European Union have some legislation for employee representation um, on company boards. In some countries, it's very weak. In, in others, like Germany, it's, it's pretty strong. In, in a German company with more than, I think, 2,000 employees, half the people on the remuneration committee deciding on pay have to be employee represent, representatives. Hmm. So, you know, you see this in one, one of the world's most advanced economies working perfectly all right, and it has many benefits. Uh, although, Japanese, uh, although German income differences uh, have widened, they haven't widened nearly as much as in Britain or the United States. We have to stop here, but I want to thank you so much for this conversation. It has been fascinating. And I hope that uh, when I read the next book, <laughs> um, that we'll be able to continue this conversation because it's such an incredibly important one and a very different way of looking at some of these issues, looking at it in terms of health and well-being and, and even some of the psychological considerations that we haven't had a chance to much talk about, the increase in anxiety and depression. Um, you, make, you, you point out at one point that by 1995, the average college student had the same amount of anxiety anxiety as uh, mental patients in the 1950s. And so there's lots of psychological stuff and, and internal stuff that we'd still have to talk about. But this has been challenging and fascinating. And thank you so much for joining us. And please thank Kate again when, when she's done at the Vatican. Well, thank you for having us. 
You have been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Reinstein. We were talking with Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett about their book, The Spirit Level, and the way that equality makes society stronger. And I say the spirit level a bit sheepishly, because as those of you who just heard, uh, I read the wrong book, and that happens. And when Richard pointed that out, I had an opportunity to avoid it. Uh, We could have edited it out. We could have done smoke and mirrors. But I decided to address it directly. And that's because I trust the listeners, and I know that the listeners trust me, that when you are in a circumstance where you're not competing for status, but you are part of a community of friends who share and are generous and believe in one another, you can admit your mistakes. You can be embarrassed. You can laugh about it. And so... I hope what my willingness to admit my mistake shows is exactly what Kate and Richard are pointing to, which is that equality makes things stronger. Competition doesn't necessarily make everyone better off. Competition may make some people better off relative to the people they're competing with. But if you compare similar scenarios in competitive and non-competitive environments, those folks who are in the more equal environment are better off. It's better to be rich in Sweden than it is to be rich in the United States. That's counterintuitive because we think capitalism, but nevertheless, it turns out it's better in terms of life expectancy, in terms of safety, in terms of mental health, in terms of child education. All of those things are better when you're in a more equal society. And so being able to admit my mistake and being able to chuckle and laugh at myself, and I'm sure some of you are rolling your eyes at Jack while he does this, it really goes to show how vulnerable we can be in an environment of trust and friendship and fairness. And ultimately, that's the question we have to ask ourselves right now in the United States. We live in an unequal society. Is it so unequal that we can't be vulnerable? I think maybe it is. I think we are at a time when we are so nervous about the bottom falling out, that we are so nervous about making a mistake, of that so nervous about doing the wrong thing, that everything is going to fall apart. We get sick, we become bankrupt. We make a mistake at work, we become fired. How much better would our lives be if we were equal and not competing for status and resources, but rather with friends who helped us share and be generous and have better lives. 
That is the message of the spirit level, and that is the message of this discussion, and I hope that it makes sense to all of you. If you liked what you heard, please do share your insights on social networks and tag us so that we can share it as well. Otherwise, you've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>